0: Today we are, as mentioned, continuing on in our study in the book of Matthew, and looking at Matthew chapter 18 verses 1 to 20. Uh, Jonathan spoke on chapter 17 last week, and before we get into the text for today, I actually just want to zoom out and take a little bit of a big picture look at Matthew. Just to kind of remind ourselves of the context sometimes that helps me understand a passage and kind of get why these verses are here what's it trying to get across to us so when i look at matthew i see it as sort of split into five main sections with two bookends Um, the first bookend is an introduction to the main person of the story who is jesus and we read about his birth in that section We read about some events that happened in his childhood. And then that section ends with his baptism, which is basically God's affirmation and confirmation of who Jesus is. And he says, yes, this is my son, my beloved son. Uh, And then Jesus launches out into his ministry in the next five sections. And each of those sections is kind of made up of some stories and interactions that Jesus has, and then concluded with a section of teaching that is related to the theme of the stories before. So the first section is chapters 4 to 7. And those are basically Jesus announcing and offering God's kingdom as it was promised all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, The Jews were expecting a Messiah who would free them from their oppressors and restore the physical kingdom of earth on Israel. Um, And God had promised that, but on his terms. And some of those terms are expounded by Jesus in these chapters. And we come to see that God's kingdom will not come unless Israel accepts the Messiah on God's terms instead of what they had set up in their own minds. Uh, Chapters 8 to 10 are basically a proof then that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the King, and that he has the power to accomplish what God has promised. And he does a bunch of miracles here that basically just confirm his identity and his power. The next section would be chapters 11 to 13, And this records some different responses to Jesus' proclamation and offer of the kingdom. And basically in this section, we see rejection. Uh, We see doubt by John the Baptist. We see rejection by the cities where he did most of his miracles. We see rejection by the scribes and the Pharisees. And then ultimately, we see that Christ is rejected by his own hometown of Nazareth. And so following that, we come to the section that we're in now of Matthew, chapters 14 to 20. And here we see different expectations that various groups have of the Messiah. And throughout this section, Jesus continues to suggest that perhaps the kingdom of God is not going to come quite in the way that people were expecting. It might look a little bit different. So uh, Jonathan talked on chapter 17 last week, as mentioned. And that kind of concludes the story or narrative interaction section. Um, And then in chapter 18, Jesus is now going to go into some teaching on the backwardness or the upside-downness of his kingdom. Uh, The disciples bring up a good starting point for his sermon, and they ask a question. They say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That seems like a simple enough question to me, and actually one that sort of makes sense when you're talking about a kingdom, right? We're used to thrones and powers and rank and everything like that. But Jesus actually refrains from answering their question right off the bat. And instead, he takes a minute and he calls over a little child as an example. And he says to them, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So first off, let's not talk about becoming the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's talk about even being in the kingdom in the first place. And what is the way to enter the kingdom? Well, Jesus would say that it's to turn and become like a child. He doesn't offer a very noble-sounding answer here. Uh, he certainly doesn't offer the answer that would have appealed to the religious leaders of his time. Um, become like a child. A child had no social standing. A child had no rights. A child was helpless. A child was simple. A child was weak. All the things that the Pharisees did not want to look like. Uh, and yet, that's what Jesus said why would he say to become like a child well he goes on to answer their original question in um, verse four whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven so whoever humbles themselves not exalts themselves not strives to become the greatest uh, not goes looking for it if you think about it a child often has a humble simple trust And you can just picture Jesus calling over this little child, maybe someone that knew him, maybe not, and putting him in this group of strange men. And what does the child do? He comes, um, probably timid, obedient, helpless, um, but trusting that Jesus knows what's best and will take care of him. And Jesus uses this as an illustration of what it takes to to enter or to become the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't actually offer a distinction on those two, kind of pointing out that that's not the point. Don't don't ask about becoming the greatest. How do you even become part of the kingdom of heaven? And these are kind of familiar things to us, I think, but so, so counterintuitive to the people of Jesus' day. Because by and large, they had misinterpreted the point of the law and the teachings in the Old Testament. And the law, as stated in Romans 3, would never justify anyone. But the Jews of Jesus' time, they'd come to see those things as attainable, and they were proud, thinking that they could earn a way into the kingdom of God. And so rather than running to God like a helpless child, as they should have, as they looked at the law, they thought, no, I can do this. I can enter God's kingdom by my own power. So that's still lists the background that the disciples were coming from with this question. Um, about greatness. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and what can I do to become that greatest person? That's not the point. So now that Jesus has established this backward seeming approach to the kingdom, he goes on in verse 5 and 6 to say more. Well, he has this child there as an example. Verses 5 to 6 say, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea now a lot of people suggest that when jesus is talking about uh little children here uh, these little ones and a child here he's referring not just to literal children but also to his followers and he's continuing on with the comparison that he presented in the previous verses. And that is how I would see this passage and interpret it as well. And so here in these verses, Jesus is addressing specifically the topic of causing other believers to sin. When we go on in the chapter, Jesus is going to speak about the unbelieving world's relationship with sin, about God's determination to save those lost in sin. Um, And also how to deal with sin that has happened between brothers in the church so jesus offers a contrast here in these verses between welcoming a child in his name and causing one of them to sin whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me and the greek for welcome here or receive it might be in your bible is dekomai, and it basically means to offer hospitality or to grant access to a visitor and we as believers actually have the privilege of welcoming the lord of serving him or granting him access in our lives as it were through serving and welcoming others obviously we can't offer actual hospitality to jesus here on earth he doesn't need that from us but he has given us a way to do that through serving those around us and we bless god as we bless and care for his people Now, the opposite of this receiving or welcoming of others is the next part here in verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So when we welcome another person, it builds them up, right? When we cause one of them to sin, it actually does the complete opposite. That is a very damaging thing to a believer. Um, and so rather than cause another believer to sin, Jesus is saying here that it would be better basically to die. And that's a pretty strong statement, kind of a shocking statement. And I do think that Jesus is using a bit of hyperbole here. I don't believe that God wants us to go executing other believers if they cause someone to sin. If that were the case, probably we'd have an empty room here today, right? All of us fail, all of us irritate someone, whatever cause others to sin at some point. But the point is, do not take sin lightly. Do not take causing others to sin lightly either. Paul also talks more about this topic um, later on in the epistles. gives a bit more detail than Jesus goes into here um, in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, if you want to read more on this subject. And he basically points out there that as believers, we are called to live self-sacrificially. And to live self-sacrificially, even to the point that we give up rights that we have, things that we legitimately can do or partake in, in order to help another believer not sin. So moving on now to verses 7 to 9 jesus gives a warning to the world at large about temptations to sin now these verses are often interpreted as kind of a strong warning to believers to avoid sin um, and an admonition to take drastic measures to avoid falling into sin Um, and i think that that is absolutely true and legitimate But I don't think that this passage is actually meant to address that issue. And the main reason I say that is because the consequence offered here in these verses is that if we sin, we will be thrown into the hell of fire. And for believers, that is directly contrary to the word of God, isn't it? We are safe. We are secure. We are no longer in danger of hell. That is not a threat that we're given. Um, and Christ made sure of that. He made sure of that with his blood. So I'm not downplaying the seriousness of sin in a believer's life or downplaying any measures that we should take to avoid sin, but I don't see this passage as speaking about that. So I'm going to look at it from a different perspective than we maybe usually do. And Jesus would say here, whoa, alas, right? An exclamation of grief for the world because of temptations to sin. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. Why is it such a big deal that these temptations exist? Why is it such a big deal to bring temptation to another person? Well, if you think about it, because sin is the thing that causes all the wrong in the world that we see around us every day. Uh, It's the reason that things are not perfect and whole, as they were created to be. Uh, Sin is also the reason for death. We're all familiar with physical death that comes about as a result of sin. Um, Death is also a separation from a relationship with God here on Earth. And ultimately, death is an eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Um, And that's not how God originally designed the world to be, right? So Jesus has a good reason to proclaim here grief for the world and to denounce anyone who would cause another person to sin. Verses 8 to 9 say some pretty strong things, and I'm just going to read those for you. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Some pretty strong things right i think that there are three main points that jesus is trying to get across in these verses Uh, the first one of those points has already been stated and that is that sin is serious and it brings eternal judgment that's an unpopular opinion in our world today a very unpopular opinion Uh, in some circles it's become even an unpopular opinion within churches and yet it is an undeniable truth from the word of god that you can't read the Bible without seeing that that is a consequence of sin. Eternal life is worth anything. That's the second point that Jesus is trying to get across here. And it would literally be worth maiming yourself if that would cause you to live a perfect life. Because if you were perfect, that is the criteria laid out in the Bible to enter heaven. Um, but would you really never sin if you didn't have a hand? Would you really never sin if you didn't have a foot? Would you really never sin if you were blind? I don't think so. Um, the world over, and for as long as sin has been in the world, you see people doing everything that they can to address this problem on their own. You see people yeah, trying to take care of the problem of sin by themselves. Uh, if you think about it, the very first thing that we read about Adam and Eve after they disobey God in the garden is what? That they try to address this new problem of sin themselves, and they close themselves in leaves. Um, with the nation of Israel, when God is in- instituting the law, one of his main purposes in that, as I mentioned earlier, was to prove that mankind is incapable of living a holy life. God gave them everything that they needed to be set apart from the world around them. All these laws, all these rules, right? But they failed. And even so, people are still trying to this day to live a life that is good enough for God. Uh, Here are monks spending years or decades locked away in a room just meditating or out in nature doing anything they can to avoid sin. Many religions, Islam for example, is full of rules and regulations that are designed to avoid their interpretation of what they see as wrong. Um, Does it work? No, it doesn't work. And that's not surprising from the word of God. I think that one of the main things, methods used by people to avoid sin or to feel righteous in our world today is to redefine sin or to deny it, to blur the lines, to say, oh, whatever. It's just a small lie. It's just one time. It's just a thought, right? But that doesn't work. And Jesus is saying, if you were blameless, if you were truly blameless, you would enter life. And it might seem like Jesus is saying that we can actually earn our way into heaven, and that's attainable. But his third point in this section is implied for further meditation and that is that no one is perfect and actually no measure that we take can stop us from sinning can stop an unbeliever from sinning and so the world has to look for a different solution to this problem of sin and a self-righteous person reading this passage might come away thinking yeah actually i'm i'm fine no problem with that But an honest person reading this passage would have to come away and realize, no, I'm not okay, And I'm actually hopeless if this is the level of perfection required by God to enter his kingdom. And it is the level of perfection required by God to enter his kingdom. But God doesn't leave us there in that situation, does he? In verses 10 to 14, Jesus gives an answer to this problem. And that answer is that God acts on our behalf. It says, see that you don't, do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. So first off, there's a strange bit in here about angels. So what does that mean? Uh, it's hard to say. That's my opinion, because it's only really mentioned here and maybe briefly referred to a couple of other places. Um, but it seems as though perhaps all people have an angel that represents them before God or that is responsible to specifically lead them towards faith in Christ. Um, it's not a hill that I would die on that interpretation. And if you have other thoughts, let me know. Uh, I think it's interesting to think about and also important not to try and form too many doctrines around this little statement because there's not much to go off of here. But nevertheless, do not despise these little ones because their angels are before God, whatever that means, and because Jesus came to save them, the lost. So the parable that Jesus tells next about the lost sheep shows God acting on our behalf rather than us earning our way or meriting a place in God's kingdom. I'll just read verses 12 to 14 here. What do you think? If a man has a 100 sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. A shepherd was one of those professions that would have been quite familiar to the people of Jesus' day. They would have seen them performing their duties all the time around them, and also as Jews, the Old Testament was chock full of references to shepherds and references to God as the shepherd of his people. And a shepherd values his sheep just as God values the people that he has created, and that one lost sheep was worth it in this parable to that shepherd to go traipsing through the hills until he found it, no matter what it took, right? That there were 99 other sheep that were not in danger, and yet that one was precious, and that one was the shepherd, It was the one that the shepherd cared about when it was in need. The Son of Man came to save that which was lost, and all of us were lost at one point. Praise God that those of us who know him here are no longer lost, And that is not because of anything that we have done. It's not because of anything that is valuable in us and great in us and ourselves. That is because God has done the pursuing. In God's kingdom, he does the pursuing of mankind, not the other way around. Because we cannot attain, we cannot pursue God well enough to attain a place in his kingdom. And so it's reversed from what people often expect says here that it is not the will of my Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And that's why Christ came, isn't it? Because the Father was not willing that the lost should perish. And Jesus doesn't go into the full gospel here in this passage because those events haven't all taken place yet. But he foreshadows what will come, and he hammers home again this point that the kingdom of heaven is not going to function how the people of his day expected it to function. And that was by earning their way into it. So in the final section here, in verses 15 to 20, Jesus speaks about sin between brothers and some steps to take in addressing those problems. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Well, that seems pretty straightforward, eh? But I think sometimes if someone sins against us, it can be quite easy to do other things first such as gossip about them, or maybe slander them, or even just stew on it and be bitter, right? Avoid that person. So many other things that we'd rather do than go and talk to someone about an issue. But that's not what Jesus says to do here. He says to go and to talk about it. And that in itself can be very difficult to do, or at least to do well, because when we go, the point is not to vent our anger on our brother. The point is not to just make them feel bad about themselves. The point is to gain your brother, or to win him back, to restore a relationship that was broken because of sin against you. In best case scenario, when you go and you talk to your brother in a loving, gracious way, he listens to you, and he realizes the problem, and the relationship is restored. Uh, verse 16, but if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the next step that Jesus presents here is to take a couple others along with you and talk to this brother and the purpose of this obviously isn't to intimidate him or anything like that, maybe don't grab you know your toughest looking friends and go talk to him. That's not what Jesus is saying here, the witnesses, they serve two main purposes in establishing the charge that I can think of. Um, One is to bring clear thinking to both parties, Uh, sometimes an outside perspective is helpful. In a situation like this, um, it can be hard to accept an accusation against you as legitimate if it comes from just one person, but if two or three people come and tell you that hey actually no, what's happening is a problem, then that can be a bit of a wake up call for us right. Um, on the flip side of that, it could be that if you are the one confronting a brother, you might be wrong about what's going on. Um, we can get in our heads. We can interpret things the wrong way. We can even place expectations on other people that actually have nothing to do with real sin, and it's just our expectations, right? And all those things can often be seen better by a couple individuals outside of the situation. And so witnesses help bring clear thinking in establishing a charge as accurate and reasonable. Uh, the second function that those witnesses serve would be to be witnesses for the assembly should things go to the next step. Witnesses to say that, yes, the sin is actually going on, and also witnesses to say that the issue has been brought up. These first two steps have been taken, and nothing has changed. Um, And the next step that Jesus says to go to, if the offender still doesn't listen, is to present the matter to the assembly. Now, the church hadn't been established yet when Jesus spoke this. So the disciples will be picturing taking this matter to a synagogue or to the Jewish council or something like that. But we see these steps take place uh, in the New Testament and repeated in the epistles a few times. Um, and I will suggest that this is something that needs to be done very carefully, taking this matter to the church, probably not. Should probably should not just stand up in the middle of a meeting and announce the issue to everyone. Uh, it suggest that the right thing to do would probably be to go to the elders and mention it to them. Or, if for some reason that's not something you're comfortable with, to take it to another mature believer who will then approach the elders and to proceed with their wisdom and their direction from there. Uh, I think that in our culture, this idea of bringing a personal problem to the church seems a little bit extreme. We live pretty private lives, especially when it comes to problems. Uh, So to do this maybe seems a bit out there. Uh, I do think that it's something that should not be taken lightly. I don't think that it's something we should just do all the time for any reason. Uh, This is for sins against us that are breaking a relationship and that are not able to be addressed otherwise. I think we see in this passage that God values relationships between his people and Actually, he values those relationships so much that he gives us the last step of church discipline in verse 17, at the end of verse 17. If he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day, they kept themselves separate from the Gentiles. And they despised tax collectors as traitors against Israel. And so to treat a brother or sister in Christ this way, that would be heartbreaking for both parties, wouldn't it? To have that relationship just cut off completely. And the reason for doing that is not to give up on the offender. The reason is still to bring repentance and restoration. The church in Corinth is an example of a church that had to deal with one of their members in this way and they went through all the steps and it's evident that this man had repented and so in 2 Corinthians 26 six to eight Paul says about this person. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So yeah, when it comes to confronting sin, we must always, always keep the end goal in mind, and that is the restoration of a relationship. Verses 18 to 20 give some further insights on this subject. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, If two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I don't know that I've necessarily come to completely a settled conclusion on what these verses mean. I've studied them in preparation for this and in the past as well. And I do have an idea, but I would very much be open to hearing other people's ideas. Later, if you have a different interpretation of this passage, um, I do have a few thoughts on the matter. A similar thing is stated by Jesus to Peter specifically, just a couple of chapters earlier in Matthew 16:19. And then also later, after Jesus' resurrection, in John 2023, 20, uh, Jesus says this to the rest of the disciples again. Um, Here are some thoughts I have on this. I think that this statement relates to church discipline, as it seems tied into that same section. Um, And i also thinking of the tense of the verbs, uh, to be loosed in heaven and to be bound in heaven. Those are future perfect verbs, if that means anything to you, going back to your grammar classes. Uh, But it basically means that when the disciples are doing the loosing and binding, those things will already have been bound or loosed in heaven. So it doesn't seem to me as though the disciples are making decisions on church discipline here that will then have binding effects in heaven. It's that they will make, uh, the decisions they make will reflect what God has already decided in heaven. So it seems to me as though Jesus is granting a special wisdom to these 12 apostles for the new church, this new representation of God's kingdom and that he is giving them that special wisdom to be able to deal with sin issues that would so easily tear apart and destroy this new church. So the next few verses there 19 to 20 then would carry along a similar line. If two or three of the apostles ask for anything from the father, it would be granted to them because if they agree on something, then God, Jesus would be there with them in a special way. Uh, and something like this has happened before in the scriptures. Uh, with the, When God established Israel, he chose someone to be kind of spearhead that establishing. And that person was Moses. And Moses had access to God in a special way that others of his time did not have, and others after his time did not have either. Um, and he received. Revelation directly from God, he received wisdom directly from God and communicated with God in different ways than those around him. And that was for the purpose of establishing this new program that God was establishing in Israel. So it seems to me as though something similar is happening here in the New Testament. And that seems consistent, in my opinion, with what we see in the books of, book of Acts and the epistles with the apostles. But again, if there's other views, let me know after. I'd be interested to hear those. That sort of wraps up the section that I have today. And I trust that there are some things in there to think about for you, some good reminders, reminders of God's grace and mercy, that we can approach him like a little child, simply trusting that he has pursued us rather than leaving us alone and lost in the wilderness of our sin. Um, I guess I haven't really given you any specific applications from this passage. I've thought about it personally, but I don't know each of your situations. Uh, maybe that there is sin affecting a relationship between you and another brother or sister in Christ that needs to be addressed. Uh, maybe that in some way or another, you are actually causing another believer to sin. And that's something that needs to be considered as well. Uh, It Could even be that you don't fully understand God's way of entering his kingdom or what Christ has done on our behalf as he pursued us. And if that's the case, I would suggest that you talk to someone about it and learn more. I trust that God will use his word in our lives as he continues to work in us, what he desires as we trust and follow him. And I'll just close in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. And we thank you that you pursued us when we were hopeless and lost. And thank you that you pursued us to the point of sending your own son to die on a cross for our sins. We thank you that the way to enter your kingdom is not by striving. Or making ourselves perfect because that's impossible but simply by trusting in your provision of a way father please work us work in our lives to make us people who would build each other up rather than tempting each other to sin tearing each other down pray that you would make us people who would seek unity and reconciliation with our fellow believers uh, no matter what their defense might be and lord just as you were not willing that any should perish and as you sent your son to save the lost may we faithfully reach out to those around us with the same message of hope the same message of reconciliation uh, the message of your grace and your love and your kindness to us i pray these things in the name of the lord jesus amen